Well, good morning. It's good to be with all of you here at Gospel of Grace. Thank you for the lovely worship. Worship team, thank you. And I also want to thank Steve for doing the announcements, doing double duty as drummer. I wanted to mention, as he had talked about what a great job Bob and Jessica are doing at Critical Issues Commentary, it reminded me I actually have one of Bob's articles in my Bible. And I just wanted you to remember that Bob has written about probably the most important theological issues that the church has had to face through the last 50 years. And oftentimes, you forget that all of that information is there. So if anyone's out there and you have a theological question, type in your Google search, critical issues commentary, and then whatever your topic is. And I bet Bob has probably got an article for you. Um, I have to tell you, one time Bob had looked up an article to see what was online about a certain subject, and he found his own and he looked at me and goes, well, I already know what I believe on it. So, <laughs> But uh, I always laughed about that. So um, if there's any question you have, Critical Issues Commentary articles are a very good source. So with that today, I want you to recall that we're in Matthew chapter 6. And here, Jesus wants his followers to exceed the righteousness of that of the scribes and the Pharisees. And so today, we're going to learn that this means we must learn to be a generous people that long to give for the good of others, but also out of gratitude for what Christ has done so freely for us through giving us all things regarding salvation. So we're going to be challenged today to answer this question, are you stingy for this world or generous for the kingdom? And so we're going to be challenged to ask ourselves, am I stingy in, in my giving because I'm only living for this world or am, am I going to be generous to others because I'm living for Christ and his kingdom. I think that that's the major point that Jesus is getting at in these verses. Now, today we're going to begin in Matthew 6, 19 through 21. The first three verses, Jesus is going to challenge us about what type of reward we are trying to acquire. Listen to what he says. He says, Do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But store up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in or steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Now, dear ones, I want to pull up my pointer here. I want you to see in this very beginning where Jesus says, do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth. More than likely, it's probably best rendered, stop storing up treasures on earth. Now, I say that because the present imperative here in the Greek probably has to do with prohibiting something that Jesus was aware that was currently going on. He knows the minds of his audience, and yes, it is something that is true to say that all men and women tend to want to store up treasures here on earth. I want you to remember that we had just studied not long ago Jesus' model prayer in Matthew 6, 9 through 13, and there we had learned that we are not to pray for our greeds, but our needs. And so we have to know that the disciple of Christ has to be one who prays for their daily provision and not to be one who stores up endless amounts of stockpiles of their goods here and now. And what we're going to learn later in this message is that coveting possessions is really evidence of substituting the trust in God for salvation for our happiness, and rather trusting in possessions instead. I want you to notice here that Jesus doesn't want his audience to store up his treasures on earth. Why? Because the moth can destroy them, the thieves can break in and steal. And I want you to realize as we read that, 
in ancient Israel, there were no modern banks. They couldn't just take their money and go put it in a bank to be secure or take some good that they had and put it in a deposit box. So yes, people were prone to heaping up their possessions in their home. And yes, indeed, they were prone to being destroyed or to be stolen. But I want you to realize that even if your goods are not stolen or they're not somehow destroyed by a moth, they're still temporary. Why? Because the death rate is always going to be one per person. And so that's why Jesus and all of Scripture tells us to be very circumspect about the type of reward that we're looking for. In fact, let me read to you Proverbs Proverbs 23, 4 through 5. You don't have to turn to it, but just jot it down if you're a note taker. Solomon wrote this. He said, Do not weary yourself to gain wealth. Cease from your consideration of it. When you set your eyes on it, it is gone. For wealth certainly makes itself wings like an eagle that flies towards the heavens. Brothers and sisters, all of us are heading for the grave if the Lord shall tarry, and we will take nothing with us. And so instead, notice the contrast. Jesus doesn't want us to have treasures here on earth, but where? To store them up in heaven. Now, what does it mean to store up treasure in heaven? How does God give such reward and such treasure out? Well, the first thing every person needs to know is that it is only those who have faith in Jesus Christ that will ever be rewarded by God. It's, it's very clear in the Scriptures. In fact, in Romans 8, 8, it says, those who are in the flesh, meaning outside of Christ, cannot please God. So there is going to be not one reward given to any unbeliever outside of Jesus Christ. The only thing the unbeliever has to look forward to is eternal torment in the lake of fire. The only reward comes to those who are saved from the wrath of God through faith alone in Christ alone. Now, how does Jesus reward his people? Well, Bob was touching on this in 1 Corinthians chapter 3. We learned in 1 Corinthians 3.14 that Paul says, if we will build according to the foundation of the gospel, our reward will remain. Now, what does it mean to build according to the gospel? Well, I want you to break it into two categories. First of all, there's faithful living. That is, being obedient to the commands of Christ in the terms of the new covenant. Yes, God will reward the obedient living of his people. The second category is the good works which God has prepared beforehand that we should walk in them, as he says in Ephesians 2.10. And these good works that you and I are called to do are, again, rooted in the gospel. So let me give you an explanation. Let's think of a Jehovah Witness. They're going out. They think they're doing good works, and they are doing works, that's for sure. But are they good works that are going to receive a reward from God? No, because the gospel that they have is a different gospel. Their Jesus is not the Jesus of the Bible. The Jesus of the Bible is truly God. Jesus says in John 8, 58, before Abraham was, I am. Their Jesus is not eternal. He's a created being. And so they have a different spirit, a different gospel, a different Jesus. There'll be no reward. But you, brothers and sisters, I don't care what you do as far as the gift that you're given. If you're exercising your gift that God has given you for the sake of the assembly, the church, and for the sake of the gospel, God is going to reward it. When are we going to experience this reward? We're going to experience when we have our resurrected bodies. Do you know the reward that you're going to have is never going to be stolen? Because when you're given it, 
You're going to be in your resurrected body. You're going to be in a glorious kingdom, reigning with Christ for a thousand years, followed by the eternal states. A new heavens, a new earth, and a new Jerusalem will be your playground. And you'll be having reward forevermore, never to be affected by a moth or rust or stolen. That's what we ought to be living for. Now, think about it. You could have the lowliest person on the planet that no, no one's ever heard of, some person that's so obscure no one knows, but they give to the gospel maybe just a little bit, and we know from the Scriptures they're going to be rewarded forever. Contrast that perhaps with the most well-known man on the planet, the wealthiest person who doesn't serve Christ, but everyone in the world knows him if they don't know Christ. There's no reward. They only have to look forward to eternal torment. And so that's why Jesus drives us in verse 21 to the heart of the issue. He says, for where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Dear ones, true believers long for the promises of God. We are those who are excited about the coming kingdom and the return of the Lord Jesus Christ. And therefore, if we really are that people, it is going to be made evident by seeking treasure not here on earth, but rather in heaven. If a person seeks only this world, their treasury will indeed show it. Now, this does not mean that a wealthy Christian, or excuse me, a wealthy person can't be a Christian. It doesn't mean that. In fact, we know that there are wealthy believers even in the Bible. Lydia was a wealthy believer in the book of Acts. So yes, it's not that wealth excludes you from the kingdom, but the difference between the believer and the unbeliever is the believer has possessions the unbeliever, the possessions have them. Do you have possessions or do your possessions have you? And the issue is one of slavery, as we will find out. Not being a slave to your possessions, but owning them all for the good of others and for the glory of God. Now, as we continue here in the next two verses, Jesus clarifies what kind of attitude is necessary to be a genuine seeker of heavenly reward Matthew 6, 22 through 23 says, The eye is the lamp of the body, so then if your eye is clear, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light that is in you is darkness, how great is the darkness? And the dear ones, Jesus here is talking about a very difficult metaphor. He's talking about the eye is the lamp of the body. And I think the intent here is probably to say that the rest of the body is dependent upon the eye, and so the eye reveals the desire of the whole self. I think the eye is a metaphor for one's desire, one's desire that drives your entire being. Now, the reason this is a very difficult metaphor is because Jesus is speaking to an audience of Jews who probably knew this idiomatic expression. So, for example, let's say you had a Jew who transported themselves from Jesus' day to ours, and you gave the idiomatic expression, it's raining cats and dogs out there. Wouldn't that be a little confusing to them? They'd have no idea what you're talking about. Well, I think the same thing goes here regarding the eye. Let me explain why. Notice, first of all, Jesus says, if your eye is clear, your whole body will be full of light. Now, the term clear there comes from the Greek term haplous, and it's rendered here in New American Standard Bible clear. It's rendered by the ESV as healthy, 
It's rendered by the Holman Christian Standard Bible as good. There's no clear consensus as to how to render it. Now, it becomes even more difficult when we consider the fact that the term haplous is going to be opposite of the term bad. Okay, whatever clear is opposite of this term haplous, it has to be opposite of the term bad. Okay, and and to me, clear doesn't really cut it. How is clear the opposite of bad? All right, so what I'm going to claim is that the best rendering for the term clear for haplous is generous. All right, now why? Because the term bad, to have a bad eye to the Jew, a poneros eye, meant that you were stingy. Now, let me prove that to you. What I'm claiming is Jesus saying, he's saying this, the eye is the lamp of the body. So then if your eye is generous, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is stingy, your whole body will be full of darkness. Let me build you the case that that is indeed the best rendering of these two terms. First of all, turn your Bibles to Deuteronomy 15, verse 9. And what I'm going to show you again, remember, as we're reading the Bible, we're reading someone else's mail. We're reading a message that originally was given to Galilean Jews. And this would have been an expression that they knew of. They knew in the culture what it was to have an evil eye or a generous eye. So turn your Bibles again to Deuteronomy 15, verse 9. As you're turning there, remember Deuteronomy 15 is all about the Shemitah law. What happens on the seventh year that you are to give the land a rest, but you're also to give remission of debt. If someone owed you something, you're to free them of their debt on the seventh year. Also, by the way, on the year of Jubilee. Well, the issue comes up in verse 9. What if the year of remission, the seventh year, is approaching and someone asked you to give you something? In other words, they need something from you. Are you going to give to them? After all, you're never going to get paid back. That's the issue in verse 9. Why? Because the year of remission is approaching. Are you going to be generous or are you going to be stingy? Notice what the Lord warns of. Deuteronomy 15.9, he says, Beware that there is no base thought in your heart, saying the seventh year, the year of remission is near, and your eye is hostile. Stop there. Does everyone see the term hostile? In the Greek Septuagint, the term is paneros. Same term that's used here for bad. So the eye that is hostile is one that does not want to give. Notice he says, beware that your eye is hostile toward your poor brother and you give him nothing, that he may cry out to the Lord against you and it will be a sin in you. Now, what's more, not only in Deuteronomy 15.9, but in Proverbs 28.22, we see the same term paneros used for the stingy and the ungenerous man. It says, a man with an evil eye hastens after wealth and does not know that want will come upon him. There's the greedy man has the evil eye that is stingy. Now, let's look at the term clear. Let me give you some evidence that the term haplous in the New Testament indeed means generous. Turn your Bibles to 2 Corinthians 8.2. 2 Corinthians 8.2, I'll give you some time to turn there. What you're going to see here in 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 2, is a reference to the giving of the Macedonian church, and you're going to see that they did it generously or with liberality, as the New American Standard Bible puts it. But the term is the noun form of the adverb here for haplous, for clear. So again, we're looking at this first term, clear, 
an evidence that it means generous. The, the second term we've already concluded probably means stingy. So we're looking at this term hapless for clear. Notice how it's used. 2 Corinthians 8, 2. Paul says regarding the Macedonian church, he says that in a great ordeal of affliction, their abundance of joy and their deep poverty overflowed in the wealth of their liberality. Notice the term liberality is the noun form of this adverb that's rendered here clear. They were generous. One more passage. I promise you're going to get a workout in your Bible today. You probably have calluses when you go home. Turn to James 1.5. Please turn your Bibles there. James 1.5. I just want to show you one more example of the adverb use of haplus. James 1.5. Hope you've turned there. Notice here it says, But if any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask of God who gives to all generously and without reproach, and it will be given to him. The term generously is the identical adverbial form of haplus here. So here's the point. What Jesus is saying to us, I think, is that, again, if your eye, which drives your entire being, your desire, if you are generous, then you're full of light. But if you're a stingy person and you don't want to give, you're filled with darkness. Now, is Jesus saying somehow we're saved by our giving? No, he's not saying that at all. The idea is that those who truly belong to him, those who truly have the values of Christ and his kingdom are going to be those who are not living to hoard things here and now, but they're longing to be generous to others and to glorify their God. They're going to live out the great commandment, love the Lord your God with all your being and your neighbor as yourself. But dear ones, think about it. If you're living to hoard possessions, then you're not looking to be generous to others. It's a sign of unregeneracy. It's a sign that you're looking to live only for this world and not for the glorious kingdom to come. That's the warning that Jesus is giving. That's the attitude we have to have to be one who is generous towards God and others. Now, Jesus builds off of this by telling us we can only serve one master. It's either God or it's wealth. Matthew 6, 24, he says, No one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and wealth. Now here, before we consider once again what Jesus is saying, this saying again is difficult for us as Americans living in the year 2022, because I think many Americans will say, Yes, I do serve two masters. I go to the office and I serve my boss or my company. Then I go home and I serve my family. I'm serving two masters. But I want you to realize that Jesus is not talking about employment or familial relationships. He's talking about slavery. Now, how do we know that? Well, notice the two verbs he uses. The term serve, duluo, and again, duluo right here. It means to serve as a slave. And the idea in slavery is that you can only be owned by one master at a time. And so you're either going to be under the mastered lordship of God or you're going to be mastered by wealth. It's either or. It's one or the other. And so which will it be for us? That's really the question. Now, be careful. Notice this text does not say you cannot have God and wealth. The verb is to serve. In other words, there are wealthy Christians who have wealth, but they're not serving well. Are you with me? 
The prohibition is not that you cannot have God and wealth, but that you can't serve God and wealth. That's the idea. Let me tell you a story of someone in our congregation who owned things, but things didn't own him. Many of you know Bill Lindsay, the famous cardiologist and heart surgeon that was a parishioner here at Gospel of Grace. His beautiful daughter and son-in-law are here, Gene and Nancy Fleecheck, and then, of course, his wife, Joanne Lindsay. When we had the funeral for Bill Lindsay, I'll never forget the son, Jay, came up, and he gave a story where Jay was in an auto accident, if you recall, and the family car was wiped out. But, of course, Bill's driving to see. He's all worried about his son. Bill Lindsay comes driving up, and as Jay tells the story, Jay gets in the car with his dad. His dad just peels off, and he's checking his boy over. Are you okay? Everything's all right? And Jay recounts how he never even knew what happened to the car. Do you know why? Because he didn't care. Bill owned things, but things didn't own him. That's what a Christian looks like. Someone who can be generous and doesn't live for the possessions of this world. Dear ones, is our desire to serve God and to live for Christ's eternal kingdom and reward? Or is it to get all that we can here and now? You know, years ago, I remember as a young man, I'll never forget, I was very young and I heard the saying, and I probably saw it in a t-shirt as well. You'll probably see it still today. You'll see the saying, the man who dies with the most toys wins. Anyone ever seen that? You know, that's really predicated on an atheistic worldview, that this is all there is. As Carl Sagan's famously said, the universe is all there ever was, all there ever is, and all there ever will be. That's the kind of worldview that's expressed by that T-shirt. And I want to say to you, that is not how the Christian should live. Some years ago, I used to work out at this workout club. I had to build my own gym because they shut it down because of COVID. But at the time, I used to do a lot of witnessing there. I'll never forget, there was a man who was an atheist, and he wanted to retire. And he was always telling me about his retirement plans. And so I played the then what game with him. Do you ever play the then what game? Ask somebody, well, then what? Well, I'm going to retire, and we're going to get an RV, and we're going to move out. And I said, well, then what? Do you know what the end of the then what game leads to? It's not a real fun one. It always leads to death. At the end of then what, you die. Well, then what? You're going to take your RV with you? You're going to take your Corvettes with you? Are you going to take your bank account, your 401k? No. The Bible's very clear. It says it's appointed for once a man to die once, and after that comes judgment. The end of the then what game is do you belong to Jesus Christ and are you living for him? Or do you belong only to this world? A true saying that really is true is not the man who dies with the most toys wins, but the man or woman who dies in Christ owns it all. That's what we learn here in the passage today. Now, with that, let me come to some application points. I have three of them for you here this morning. Number one, we must be convinced that covetousness is a form of idolatry. I want to show you the seriousness of covetousness and greed. Why? Because it is a form of worshiping and serving the creation rather than the creator. That's what we're going to see. So we're going to see covetousness is, in fact, idolatry. Number two, we should learn to be generous, a generous people who are willing to give to others for their good and for God's glory. Remember the great commandment, love the Lord your God with all your being, love your neighbors or self. That's why we should be generous. 
Number three, we must long for the kingdom, not this world. Bob's been teaching this congregation for 40 years to long and look for the promises of God. We sing about it today. That's the key in living a generous life here and now. Okay, let's begin with number one. I want to begin by demonstrating the biblical link between covetousness and idolatry. And I want to do this because I want you to see the serious nature of being stingy and not being generous to others. The prohibition against covetousness begins in the Old Testament, in the Decalogue. Remember Exodus 20, 17, I think it's also in Deuteronomy 5, 21. The 10th commandment, the Lord says, thou shalt not covet thy neighbor's possessions, whether it's the neighbor's house, the neighbor's wife, whatever it may be. Now, this commandment is predicated on the idea that first, God's people should be content with what they have, but it's also assuming that there are some things that are moral to desire, and there are other things that are immoral to desire. So take a young man in Israel who longs to one day have a wife and a home. That is a moral desire. But let's say a young man wants someone else's wife in someone else's house. That is an immoral desire. So in the 10th commandment, what God is showing is that not only for the individual, but society, society is only going to be as healthy as what the people desire. If they desire immoral things, you will have an immoral society. If they desire good things, you will have a good society. Look around you today. What do you think our society is longing for, good things or evil things? I think it's the latter. Now, perhaps the reason why God lists the 10th commandment as being last, though, is because in some sense the 10th commandment, thou shalt not covet, is a summary of the entire law. Because at the end of the day, the 10th commandment prohibits you and I from loving and serving anything in the creation more than the creator. And so that's exactly Paul's point, I think, in Romans chapter 7, verse 7. Remember here in Romans 7, Paul is dealing with that thorny issue of the relationship between the law and the sinner. And notice what he says. He says, what shall we say then? Is the law sin? May it never be. On the contrary, I would not have come to know sin except through the law, for I would not have known about coveting if the law had not said, you shall not covet. Now, dear ones, I want everyone to look at what's in red there. You shall not covet. That's the 10th commandment. And to be fair, when I read this, I couldn't understand at first why Paul used that commandment. Why doesn't he say, you shall not murder? I didn't know what murder was until the law said, you shall not murder. Or I didn't know what stealing was until I saw the law said, you shall not steal. The reason I don't think Paul uses those is technically you could have someone who reads it and says, you know what, I've never taken anyone's life during the years I've been alive. Or someone might say, I've never stolen anything from anyone. But no human being ever to live could ever say, that they've always longed to serve the Creator more than the creation. No one can say that. And so, yes, this law really shuts the mouth of every man. Think about all sin is rooted in covetousness. Let's go back to the garden. Adam and Eve, they have it all. They have perfection. They're in the garden. They walk with God. They can eat anything. They can eat of every tree except one. And they covet that. So much so that they long 
to live for that, the creation, rather than obeying the creator. Later, in Matthew chapter 19, Jesus is going to tell a rich young ruler that he has to sell all of his possessions and to follow after Christ, and the man won't do it. Why? Covetousness. Think about who is telling this rich young ruler that he has to sell all his possessions. And by the way, it's a command for him, not for every Christian. It was a command for this man. It was this man's issue. Sell all you have and follow Christ. Who was telling him that? Jesus, the creator of all things. This man says, no, I think I'd like to go with my possessions rather than you, Lord. He served the creation rather than the creator who is forever praised. If you ever want a good definition of what covetousness is, look at Romans one twenty five, where Paul says, regarding the unregenerate, they worship and serve the creation rather than the creator who is forever praised. That's the definition of covetousness. And so throughout the New Testament, we see that covetousness, the longing for here and now, the longing to serve the creation rather than the creator, is linked to idolatry. We see it, for example, in Ephesians 5.5. 5. The Apostle Paul says this, he says, For this you know with certainty, that no immoral or impure person or covetous man who is an idolater has an inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and and God. Now, notice here in red, it talks about the covetous man. Also, by the way, you could render the term that's used here in the Greek as the greedy man. They're really synonymous. But notice you have what's called an appositional phrase. It clarifies who is the covetous man. Well, he's also an idolater. Why? Because the covetous worship and serve the creation rather than the creator. You see the same thing in Colossians 3, 5. Paul says, therefore, consider the members of your earthly body as dead to immorality. Stop there. How can you and I consider ourselves dead to all of these sins? Well, you know that happened the moment you believed in Jesus Christ. You became positionally dead to them. So that's the picture of baptism. Baptism doesn't create the separation. It's a symbol of it. That when you go under the water, what you're saying is, I'm dead to the old world, and you come up to the newness of life. I'm not going back to the old world. I'm dead to those things. What are we to be dead to? Because we're alive in Christ. We're to be dead to Sexual immorality is the implication. Impurity, passion, evil desire, and greed with what? Which amounts to idolatry. Idolatry, why? Because again, in greed and covetousness, a person is worshiping and serving the creation rather than the creator. What are the remedies to this? What are the remedies to coveting and living for the creation rather than the creator? Well, first of all, we have to be those who trust in God and his provision, not our riches. And so it has to do with the trusting in God, who he is, and what he has done and what he will do. It's a faith issue. The second issue is that we have to be content with what we've been given by God and cultivate a generosity and a love to give more than to receive. In fact, that's exactly what Paul says in Acts 20, verse 35. We'll be coming to that in Bob's Bible study, where Paul talks about Jesus saying it's blessed, more blessed to give rather than to receive. That's the attitude that you and I are to have. And so in our second application point, I want to talk about the call, biblically, that you and I are called to be generous. Why are we to be generous? 
Again, think about the first commandment, the greatest commandment that Jesus gives us. I'm not talking about the first one in the Decalogue, but the one that Jesus says is first and foremost. We are to give because it glorifies God. We are to love Him with our whole being. And we are to give because it's good for our neighbor. We're to love our neighbors ourselves. Love the Lord your God with all your being and love your neighbors yourself. That's why you and I should be generous because it gives great glory to God. Now, I want you to see this idea of generosity again in the Old Testament. Turn your Bibles again to Deuteronomy 15. We're going to back up one verse this time. We're going to look at Deuteronomy 15.8. Earlier, we read Deuteronomy 15.9. Deuteronomy 15.8, notice the call to generosity. Deuteronomy 15, verse 8. Please turn your Bibles there. And again, this was the verse just prior to God railing against the person with the evil eye, the stingy eye. Deuteronomy 15, 8. Notice the call to generosity. He says to the Israelites, but you, Deuteronomy 15, 8, he says, but you shall freely open your hand to him and shall generously lend him sufficient for his need in whatever he lacks. Does everyone see here the call to generosity? Freely open your hand. Any strings attached to that? No, just generosity. Freely open your hand. But notice here, the generosity is not to meet every desire of your neighbor, but their need. Mahusor, their lack in Hebrew. What they're lacking. So, yes, our generosity is not so that my neighbors guaranteed the Lamborghini but so that they can eat, that they can survive, that they can heat their homes, etc. It's that sort of idea. And we see this all the way through the Old Testament, Proverbs eleven twenty five. It says, the generous man will be prosperous, and he who waters will himself be watered. Now, as you look at that, realize in the book of Proverbs, we have general principles, not absolute commands. So we all know that there are exceptions where someone may be generous and they really struggle in life and no one is generous back to them. But the implication here is that the stingy end up suffering the natural consequences of their lack of generosity. And the idea is normally those who are generous, people will love, people will take care of when they are indeed in trouble. And that's what wisdom Solomon is giving us here. Now, we have to know this generosity not only blesses us here, but it blesses us eternally. Notice Proverbs 22.9. Again, Solomon says, He who is generous will be blessed, for he gives some of his food to the poor. The blessing that you and I have, of course, is now. But, dear ones, the ultimate blessing that we're going to have is the reward that we have in heaven. We have to believe that God really is the rewarder of those who by faith do good works for him. And giving to the poor, being generous to others is a good work done all by God's grace through the heart change that God affected in you because of his grace that he will reward one day in glory. And so we see under the new covenant as we approach the New Testament, the generosity that you and I are called to never has a fixed amount. In other words, in the Old Covenant, we know that there was a tithe, the 10% that every Israelite had to give. They had to give it. It was by law. But you don't see a set amount for the believer in the New Covenant because God has graciously worked in our heart. We are free 
to determine what we're going to give. We see that in the primary New Covenant teaching passage, which is 2 Corinthians chapter 9. 2 Corinthians 9, 7, Paul says, each one, he's talking about believers, each one must do just as he has purposed in his heart, not grudgingly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. Now, three things I want you to take from this text. Number one, notice there's no set amount. There is no masher. No, there is no tithe in Hebrew. In other words, he doesn't say, hey, make sure it's at least 10%. No, what you do is you determine what you've purposed in your heart. Now, why can a Christian do that? In the Old Covenant, they were demanded to give at least 10%. Because a Christian, by definition, belongs to the New Covenant because they've had a circumcised heart. They no longer have a heart of stone, a stingy heart. They're given a generous heart by God. That's why we've had a heart transplant. That's why the new covenant Christian can determine how much they're going to give. Because God knows they're going to give graciously. Second thing, we don't give in order to get grace. It's because of God's grace that we give. In fact, turn your Bibles to the very next verse. 2 Corinthians 9, 8. Please turn one verse later. You know, I can't fit everything on the screen. That's the problem with PowerPoint, right? 2 Corinthians 9, 8. The reason I want to address this is there's a systematic theology that's put out that many of you may have read, and it claims in this systematic theology that if you give, it's a means of grace where God will graciously work. But what I'm claiming is that has this text on its head. Because what the Bible teaches is that God first works graciously in you, therefore that's why you give. You don't give to get God's grace. It's because God's grace given to you, you give. That's the idea. Notice 2 Corinthians 9, 8. And God is able to make all grace abound to you so that, here's the purpose, so that always having all sufficiency in everything, you may have an abundance for what every good deed. Dear ones, you and I don't, this is my third point, we don't give to get but we give cheerfully because we've been given all things in Christ. That's why we are to be generous. Do you know right now as believers you are an owner of a glorious kingdom? You might go home and you look around, you say, this doesn't look so glorious to me. I've done that a time or two at my own room and I haven't cleaned it. But I have to tell you, you're an owner of the most glorious kingdom on the planet, the world. The world will ever see. It's glorious what you're heading for. That's the idea. Now, let's look at another passage. Notice here, 1 Timothy 6.18. Paul says to be generous and ready to share. Notice he says, instruct them to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share. How many in here have ever seen the studies where they'll look at a bunch of politicians, and ironically, it's the politicians who always want to redistribute everybody else's wealth? They're always the stingiest. They never give a lick of their own money. But they always find the people who actually believe, they're the ones who give. Why? Because we're called to be generous in the Scriptures, and God has graciously worked in our lives. Brothers and sisters, generosity must characterize the life of the believer. Why? Because God was generous to us. So much so that He gave us everlasting life. Now, the final point I want to come to here is that the only way any of us will want to be generous is and not stingy is if we're longing 
and looking for the king and his kingdom. You know, oftentimes today, I think the doctrine of imminence has fallen by the wayside, and I'm saddened by that. I think there's been a lot of sloppy thinking about it. Dear ones, the early church, the apostolic church, longed and looked for daily the return of Jesus Christ. And that was the motivating factor for godly living, including generosity. Think about this. In John 14, Jesus says, In my Father's house there are many rooms. If it were not so, I would have told you. But he says, I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go to prepare a place for you, I will come again to receive you, Paro Lombano, very tender, receive you to myself, so that where I am, there you may be also. Some theologians have falsely thought that John 14 is about us dying and going to be with the Lord. It is not. Jesus says, I will come again to receive you to myself. It's a rapture passage. He's coming again. So on the forefront of the minds of the new covenant community was the imminent return of Christ that they had a term for it. They would say Maranatha. Maranatha is an Aramaic term. They took it right from the Aramaic. Maranatha, come, Lord. How could they say that if Christ can't come? How could they say that? Just wishful thinking? No, they really believed it. And it's all over the scriptures. That's why they could be generous, because they're living for the imminent kingdom that's about to break forth. Philippians 3.20, Paul says, For our citizenship is in heaven, from which also we eagerly wait for a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. Everyone notice the term eagerly wait, apodecami. Apodecami literally means to eagerly expect. In Sunday school the last couple of weeks, I was refuting post-millennialism. Do you know what post-millennialism teaches? It teaches that you and I first have to Christianize the planet and then Christ returns to a beautiful, restored planet with no problems, as it were. Well, how long do you think that might take? So in post-millennialism, you can't expect Christ to come at any time. So there's no point in eagerly waiting for a Savior who cannot come. He can't come. We haven't Christianized the planet. Tell the people in Ukraine who are slogging it out with the Russians day after day in battle, say, hey, by the way, we have a Christianized planet. How does that look to them? And if your gospel of the end times won't preach to the Ukrainian in the foxhole, it's not true. The truth of the scriptures is that Christ can come back at any time. And it's been the blessed hope for 2,000 years. Notice here, Titus 2.13, what was the church looking for? Looking for the blessed hope and the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Christ Jesus. That's how you and I can be generous because this glorious kingdom is always at hand. Therefore, we can be generous here and now with what we've been given. Brothers and sisters, our kingdom is not going to come through our wealth and our riches. It's coming through the power and work of Christ alone. How many in here have ever seen the movie Titanic? I'm talking not about the 1950s one. I saw that. I think that was actually better. But I'm talking about the 1997 Leonardo DiCaprio one. Do you remember there's a scene where there's a wealthy guy and he's trying to take his money and buy himself favor on the Titanic? And finally, someone has to break it to him to say, you know what, your money isn't very good here. We're sinking and we're all going to die. Dear ones, the whole world is on the Titanic. And your money isn't going to do you a lick of good. 
What will do everyone in eternal good is to trust upon the Lord Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of sins and to serve him generously, loving God and neighbor to build reward forever. Brothers and sisters, you and I are called to live generously now for the coming kingdom, not to be those who are stingy for this world. That's the great high calling that our Lord Jesus Christ has for us in this passage. Let's bow our heads in prayer. Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you that you've revealed the great promises that you're coming again and the glorious truth that your people will be rewarded to enjoy forevermore in a resurrected body. We pray, Heavenly Father, in the weeks and months to come that you would give us boldness to preach your gospel, that others may know about your saving ways. They may know the way to be spared from the wrath to come. We pray, Heavenly Father, for our day today as we are going to partake in this meal. We thank you for those who prepared it. We thank you that this food comes from your hand, that we can always trust you, that you provide for us all that we need, that you provide our needs and everything. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.